the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another Women in Horror Month episode. I think this is maybe fifth or sixth annual. We've got many these days. Um, We are continuing the Religion and Horror series with Silent Hill from 2006. And I'm joined this evening by good friend of the show and fellow woman in horror, Jacqueline from A Cut Above. Welcome back, Jacqueline! Thank you, Nicole. I'm so excited to be here. It's been far too long. It really has. It really has. Um, I was saying earlier, I always love being on Jacqueline's show, but I have to be, you know, like the boys are there and the boys are great. But Jacqueline and I, we don't ever get enough FaceTime, just one on one. So it's ladies night. Um, Tell the folks a little bit about A Cut Above. So A Cut Above Horror Review is a weekly horror movie review show, and we get together every week and uh, cover a different horror film. There's not much rhyme or reason to it. We rotate our selections and uh, just kind of pick whatever we're feeling like at the time. And so we try to cover a wide um, variety of time periods of film. We try to cover different nationalities of film, different subgenres. We kind of try to get a get to everything, get a little bit of, you know, the whole gamut. So, um, yeah, it's it's the three of us. It's myself and my dear friends, John and Hyderberg. And uh, doing this podcast for almost three years now, we've, you know, it's only strengthened our friendship and um, it's something we all really love. So we all put our hearts into it, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate the themes that you guys come up with. Some of them are obvious, <laughs> some of them not so much. Uh, my recent favorite was brow vember in which you guys covered movies where people had a unibrow and there were lots of movies in there i had never heard of or seen uh yeah i had uh never heard of two of the four movies that month and uh one of them i had seen the other one i had not that is an example of a joke that we took too far but (laughs) (laughs) but it ended up having a pretty good result so uh those were some of our funniest episodes Hyderberg in particular was in fine form with his unibrow jokes. Um, it all started with, you know, a much earlier episode about prom night. And there's a character with a unibrow in that movie that just really seemed to enrage Hyderberg. <laughs> it kind of turned into, well, let's do a whole month of movies with unibrows. Yeah. So yeah, Browvember. I think those are probably great examples <laughs> of movies that were more fun to talk about than probably to watch, which is like podcasting in its finest form, if you ask me. That's partially true. There was, you know, some of those movies that month were better than others, but a couple of them were like 
shockingly fun. So, um, you know, I got to thank Brovember for making that happen because I would have never watched them otherwise. Yeah. And you guys are also doing a Women in Horror Month special on your show, right? So we're 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 not doing a single special. We're just kind of dedicating the whole month to it because yeah. we do a show every week. So uh, we have a different favorite female guest coming on each week. You are scheduled in there somewhere. I won't reveal for which episode yet. You know, but of course the listeners don't know yet. Uh, but everybody should be on the lookout for that because that's bound to be a good time. Of course, you know, we always call you our honorary fourth member. Uh, you have guested on our show more times than anyone else by a mile. So. Yeah, I feel so comfortable on y'all show. I mean, it's just, it's always a good time. Uh, y'all are so generous and like nice and so complimentary. So I always leave your show feeling very built up. Um, and it's just always a good time. I'm glad you feel that way. And it probably feels that way because we don't think of you as a guest. You're just <laughs> one of us. So, you know, you're just our friend. So let's pivot away from Women in Horror Month just for a second and lean into the uh, more religious aspect of the show. And if you don't mind sharing, what is uh, your religious background? <laughs> so currently, I am what I and others would probably call an atheist. I'm pretty staunch in that at this point. Uh, but I that was not always the case. I was raised in a you know, more or less like Christian setting. Um, my parents were not extremely religious, but we went to church, sometimes uh, a, a Methodist church for a time. Uh, I went to a private school, which was Christian in nature, but it was not, you know, any particular denomination. And they were pretty, the school was pretty relaxed about it. It wasn't like a parochial school. There wasn't like daily religious teaching or anything like that. It was kind of like, we said the Lord's Prayer every morning. There was chapel on Wednesdays, which was optional. Um, so it wasn't, you know, something that was like crammed down our throats. But unfortunately, one kind of impactful experience that I had in my youth was that I went to summer camp every summer, and it was a very intense kind of Southern ba Southern Baptist summer camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sort of methods of religious teaching there and the activities and stuff that we were supposed to do was really intense. And in my experience, quite negative. I found it to be like a very negative way of teaching. I felt like there was a lot of um, harsh judgments on the parts of like the camp directors and the counselors and a lot of moralizing and a lot of shaming and things like that. And just Overall, it, it it really left a bad taste in my mouth. And as I got older and older, I would you know I'd st still continue to go to the camp, but I would start to question my counselors sometimes and want to ask them questions mm -hmm. about like this doesn't make sense. Why do you teach us this way? And what does this mean? I don't really understand. You know, just all sorts of searching type of questions that mm -hmm. I think is typical for adolescents to go through. And those questions were really not received well or met with understanding and conversation and dialogue. It was more just kind of shut down and uh, criticized and sort of judged. And it just didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. And so that kind of left me questioning through the rest of my adolescence and searching other avenues and then deciding religion wasn't for me. And then later in adulthood, trying it one more time, like, well, this was my background. Maybe I, you know, maybe I was unfair. And, you know, I started going to church again in my twenties. Um, and then I will say 
something momentous did happen, which was that my father passed away about 13, almost 14 years ago. And I thought at the time, you know, I was conscious that like, this could be sort of a religious test for me that like, if ever there was a time that I would really want to grasp onto religion and really want to believe in it, it would be then. Um, because I would really want to believe in that existence of like a soul separate from the body. Cause I would want to believe that like my dad is in heaven now and he's still mm-hmm. with me. And, you know, and so I like, God help me. I tried, I tried really hard to believe at that time. And, um, and I had to be honest with myself and admit that it just, I, I could not. And so I thought if that didn't do it, then I think it, it's not going to at this point in my life. Was it, uh, was it at all like scary for you to, to let go of that or did it come like pretty natural? It wasn't scary to me because at that time I had already kind of thought, mm, I think this is not going to happen in my life or at least not at this stage in my life. Like, you know, people go, you know, under, go through lifelong journeys and some people come to religion very late in life and some people come and go with it and have like a complicated relationship with it. So I thought, you know, at least at this point, I don't think this is for me. So I was already kind of there. And then when my dad passed away, I thought, well, here's a test. Can, can I believe it now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, the answer was no. But I thought it was important to be honest with myself and not try to force something that really wasn't um, ringing true for me. Yeah. And I don't say that as a judgment or criticism of others who do believe. It's just, I am not there. I think um, what you said about, you know, trying to ask questions and it not being received well, that is something that for me is like a really big problem in general, because even though I've always been a believer and I haven't really ever had to struggle with my personal faith, like there've been like facets of things that, yeah, it didn't make sense to me. And um, I've, in many times I've been in a setting where I was kind of like, I just felt like a rock in somebody's shoe and they would just like sort of breeze past my thoughts or my questions. If it wasn't in the neat little box of, you know, what we teach at church. Um, and I think a lot of people probably have that experience, but I think that's a really big detriment is not allowing people to have the kind of the space to explore. Um, because I always say like, regardless of, you know, how you may feel as a religious leader, like everyone has to be honest and be truthful. And if you can't be truthful with yourself, it's not real faith. Like if you, Mm. if you just say, oh, I'm going to choose to believe this, but you don't really believe it. Like that's not healthy and that's not good. You know, that's not a, that's not any way to like, to grow a a faith or a congregation is, you know, with people who are just talking themselves into it, who don't truly believe it. So that part mm-hmm. of your story is is something that uh, I've heard from a lot of people and like really resonates with me. Um, have you ever seen the documentary Jesus Camp? No, it's on my to watch list, actually, but I have not watched it yet. I actually I'm a little afraid to because I'm worried that it's going to too closely echo my experience and like trigger something. But yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's on my queue. I watched it when I was an older teenager or a very young adult. I can't remember which, but like, oh my, I was so triggered. <laughs> I, oh gosh. I became so frustrated with like some of these parents and stuff. And I was just like, oh, I'm so glad I made it out of that culture, but the, these poor kids. So hopefully they're all healthy adults now, but yes, just be warned that like 
you will probably feel some strong, strong emotions. But thank you so much for sharing, for sharing your story. Sure. You're the first. Thank you for asking. I believe you're the first atheist I've had on the show. So I was very interested Ooh. to hear kind of like your your story. And I've heard p- bits and pieces of it, but thank you for sharing. You're welcome. So tonight we are talking about Silent Hill. And this is a little bit of a different women in horror movie for me because I usually like to highlight female like creators because we've had female characters. We've had, you know, female actresses in horror for a very long time. But that's sort of, to me, the low-hanging fruit. Not that those people shouldn't be recognized, but I usually like to really focus more on creators. So this movie does not have female creators. However, it does have some really strong religious themes. And it has great female characters, great female cast. I think the themes are appropriate to women. And both we've got the protagonist and the antagonist. It's like all women all the time. So I was like, I think this is a good one. Um, There were some maybe more obvious ones. Like I had a few people recommend St. Maud, which is a movie I really like. But I have just, I'm sort of Catholic to death right now after doing all the exorcism (laughs) stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I was like, you know what? Like, I just, I need something a little different. So uh, Silent Hill came to mind and I was just like, yeah, this this one's going to be, this one's going to be a lot of fun. Honey, sometimes when you go to sleep, you go on a little walk. And sometimes you talk about a place. I don't remember. That's why we're going to go there. So you can remember.
Rose Da Silva and her husband Christopher are disturbed by their adopted daughter Sharon's constant sleepwalking and nightmares about Silent Hill, a town in West Virginia that was abandoned in the 1970s due to a massive coal seam fire. Desperate for a solution, Rose takes Sharon on a trip to Silent Hill to find answers. Her erratic behavior concerns police officer Sybil Bennett when they encounter her at a gas station en route. As they enter Silent Hill, a girl steps out into the road, causing Rose to crash her car and black out. She awakens in the fog-shrouded dimension of Silent Hill and realizes that Sharon is missing. Searching the town for Sharon, Rose pursues the girl she encountered prior to the crash who resembles Sharon. At various points, the town suddenly transitions into a nightmarish world inhabited by inhuman monsters, including the fearsome Pyramid Head. Sybil encounters and tries to arrest Rose, but while attempting to bring her to the local station, they realize they are trapped, all roads out of town ending in a mysterious cliff. Rose encounters many other inhuman creatures and learns of Alessa Gillespie, a young girl burned as a witch by the Brethren, the town's fanatical cults. Her mother, Dahlia, wanders the streets as an outcast, guilt-ridden over her negligence that led to Alessa's suffering. In the real world, Christopher searches the abandoned town with policeman Thomas Gucci, but they find nothing. The town appears to them simply as a dilapidated, abandoned place, devoid of fog or creatures. Gucci later reveals he lived in Silent Hill and saved Alessa from the fire. He encourages Christopher to end his futile search. In the Silent Hill dimension, Rose encounters the girl again, revealed to be an aspect of Alessa. When the town transitions into the dark dimension, Rose, Sybil, and Anna, a brethren member, flee to an old church, but Pyramid Head catches and flays Anna alive. Brethren members lead Rose and Sybil to a hospital, claiming the demon that has taken Sharon is in the basement. Upon noticing an image of Sharon in Rose's locket, Christabella, the high priestess of the brethren, identifies Sharon as looking like Alessa. She decries the two women as witches and orders her brethren to stop them. Sybil holds them off while Rose descends into the basement, but is quickly subdued and captured. Rose explores the basement, but it is barricaded by a group of disfigured nurses. She sneaks past them and enters Alessa's room. In a flashback, it is revealed that Alessa was stigmatized by the townspeople for being born out of wedlock. Christabella immolated Alessa during a ritual in 1974, but Dahlia alerted Gucci. The pair arrived too late, and the ritual went awry, igniting the coal seam fire under the town. Hospitalized and in excruciating pain, Alessa's rage split her soul apart, one half manifesting as the dark entity responsible for the shifting dimensions of Silent Hill. Her remaining innocence manifested as Sharon, who was taken to the real world to be adopted. Desperate to find Sharon, Rose allows Dark Alessa's spirit into her body, allowing it access to the church. Sharon, despite being protected by Dahlia, is captured by the Brethren. In the church, Christabella burns Sybil as a witch and plans to do the same to Sharon. Rose confronts Christabella, denouncing her as a murderer before Christabella stabs Rose in the heart. Alessa emerges from the blood flowing from the wound 
as a disfigured being bound to a hospital bed and tears Christabella and her followers apart with razor wire. Rose and Sharon leave the town and return home. Upon arriving, they discover they are still in the foggy dimension separated from reality. Meanwhile, Christopher awakens alone in the real world and discovers that the front door has mysteriously opened. So Jacqueline, this was your first (laughs) watch. What was your initial reaction to this movie and did you enjoy it? Uh, wow. So it, that, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> um, it was a lot to get my head around. Um, it's, it's a complex movie. There's a lot going on. And to be honest with you, I do feel like I need a, a few more watches to, to hopefully fully get my head around it. But I, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and have, you know, hopefully pieced together some coherent thoughts about it. Um, did I enjoy it? To be honest with you, the first hour I do think was kind of a slog. Um, I think it like not a lot happened in the first hour. It was a lot of Rose kind of just running around the town um, looking for Sharon. But I feel like in the second half, that's where it really picked up and got so interesting, like so much more interesting in terms of symbolism and uh, plot intricacies and just visual imagery. So I would say I I struggled with the first half, but deeply enjoyed the second half. Does that count? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely. Um, Have you ever played the Silent Hill game before? I have not. I'm completely new to the whole concept of this story. I'm not a gamer at all. I have no background knowledge of the video game. Um, I had never seen the movie. So it's the whole thing was very new to me, like extremely fresh eyes for, for this watch. Yeah, Yeah, I've never played the game either. Um, I mean, I've heard, I think still it's considered one of the scariest games ever made. Um, I would love to play it, but I don't even know if I have the means to do so. I'm like, you can probably play almost any game on a laptop now, but like you have to have special programs. I don't know. Like if anybody out there knows how I could easily play Silent Hill, let me know. (laughs) I have a feeling that we have mutual friends who probably would know the answer to that. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, Mm -hmm. so before we get into the specifics of the movie, um, there are a couple of things I want to touch on. I want to talk about some of the real world stuff that inspired this story. And then I want to talk about the concept of purgatory and limbo. So first off, the abandoned town with the coal fire burning underneath it. That is based on a place called Centralia in Pennsylvania. Have you heard this story? I never had until you mentioned it. So, uh, and you know, before the show. So I had no idea there was any real world basis for any of this. I really thought it was just based on a video game. So I know because it doesn't seem real. It seems very supernatural. But yeah, so there is a a city called Centralia. It was a mining town and there was a fire in 1962. That's another thing too. It's like, it seems like this should have happened like a really long time ago. Like the 60s feels like kind of recent, you know, Um, but it was a mining town and I believe like the 1800s. And so I guess a lot of the mines like weren't even in operation anymore. And there is some conflicting ideas about how the fire even started like no one knows for sure how the fire started but in 1962 they were I guess they had organized they were going to do a cleanup 
of the mines and somehow it set on fire and they're not sure if like they set it on fire intentionally and then it got out of control or if it was like another factor. So that's mysterious. They're not sure exactly how it set on fire, but very quickly it became uncontrollable and it got so bad that the government had to evacuate the town and be like, you can't live here anymore. And it's still burning underneath the town. No. Yeah. Really? Yes. Like 60 years later? Yes. And so it's still just this abandoned, I guess there are a few people like hangers on who still live there. But like, if you look up pictures of it, all of the roads into town are all like cracked and overgrown. And there are pockets of just like steam from the fire underneath. And there is though, there is one church there that still meets every Sunday And it's a really cool looking church and I'm sure had to be inspiration for the church in this story. But the whole thing is just, it doesn't sound true, but it is. No, it does not. That is wild. I had no idea. Who is going to that church? Like just those few people like on the edge of town, I guess. But like, how do you stay in a town like that without like services and resources to support it? Yeah, I don't know. And like apparently wow. it's it hasn't been like the church hasn't been affected. So yeah, maybe it is like on the outskirts or maybe it's not near one mm-hmm. of the like mine shafts or something. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty wild story and people will go there for like the dark tourism or like the urban explorer folks. They'll go there. Um there's another kind of famous picture of it where there's just graffiti all over one of the like main roads into town. Um mm-hmm. so it's it's a pretty cool one. I mean, I would love to I would love to drop by someday if I'm ever in the area. <laughs> Road trip. It gives me like a kind of like a Chernobyl vibe, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's very similar to that, you know, that abandoned town type thing. Um, which, mm-hmm. by the way, folks, I have talked about both Centralia and Silent Hill in one of my previous episodes, Meltdown. So if you... <laughs> So if you have listened to that that episode and you're like, this sounds familiar, that is why. Um, The other real world place that I don't, I haven't heard that Silent Hill is directly connected to it, but there's a place in Kansas called Stoll Cemetery. And it is rumored to be a gateway to hell. (laughs) And... Uh, no one knows 100% why. It's it's widely regarded as like a hoax. Like I guess somebody wrote an article about it and I think like a university newspaper. And But again, somehow it like caught, f- caught fire and like it has like stuck in people's mind as this piece of folklore. And so it's become this pop culture thing where people just say that there's the entrance to hell is at Stoll Cemetery in Kansas, which I find pretty interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that's probably a destination for dark dark tourism as well. People going to see like, oh, am I going to see anything, you know, witchy or ghosty? Oh yeah. I'm sure that Halloween is like lit at the Stoll Cemetery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I guess uh, I read too, I never watched Supernatural, but apparently there are a couple of episodes where like, I guess they encounter the devil at Stoll Cemetery. So... So, yeah, so I didn't know that was like a famous locale, but now I, I need to get that on my radar, especially if I'm ever out in the Midwest. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I live I live in Arkansas, so I'm close to Kansas, Missouri. So I understand that sometimes there's just not a lot else to do. So might as well go to the cemetery and craft a good story. 
Yeah. What do people say happens there? Kind of, you know, creepy happenings. Let me let me look up the specifics here. Let's see. The Stull Cemetery has gained an ominous reputation due to urban legends involving Satan, the occult, and a purported gateway to hell. It is claimed that the devil appears in Stull twice a year, once on Halloween and once on the spring equinox. People say the cemetery is location, one of the seven gates of hell, uh, and one of the nearby evangelical churches says that it's possessed by the devil. Yeah, I looked it up earlier today. I was trying to find out more, and I saw these vague claims, but I never saw any kind of specific description of what people have actually seen there or, you know, any occurrence that has actually happened. So it's it all seems a little vague. I think that's why it is largely discredited. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, if anybody's been to Stolen, you have seen the devil, please let us know. Yes, because I would like to know that. <laughs> So the other cultural importance in this movie, the meat, if you will, is, of course, we've got hell, purgatory, limbo, this whole thing going on. Visually, of course, it's very hellish when it switches from Mm -hmm. the beautiful foggy ash over to the rust and the decay. Clearly, like, it's very hellish. Uh, It gives me a little bit of Hellraiser vibes. Um, Mm-hmm. And I always just kind of assumed, I was like, oh, well, this is like, these folks are stuck in like purgatory, right? That's every, we all kind of like have a cultural context for what the word purgatory means. Right. And so in searching for this episode, there are, there's purgatory and there's limbo and they're different. I did not know. Oh, okay. Yes. I so, didn't know either. <laughs> I'm about to learn, I yes, guess. Yes, <laughs> now we know. Um Purgatory, by the way, these are both very Catholic. Protestants don't believe this, and that's one of the reasons why I was not familiar with it. Um, Purgatory is a passing intermediate state after physical death for purifying or purging a soul. A common analogy is dross being removed from metal in a furnace. Limbo is the afterlife condition of those who die in original sin without being assigned to the hell of the damned. So basically, purgatory is like you've been forgiven of your original sin, so you've accepted Christ, but you have unforgiven sins. So you have to go to purgatory for a while and become purified from your earthly sins to then be worthy to go on to heaven. Limbo is where you go when you have not been forgiven of original sin, but you're not like evil enough to just be sent to hell. Mm -hmm. So there's this like sort of important distinction that I had never heard of before. So then to to clarify, am I to understand then that purgatory is temporary while limbo is eternal? That is a great question. And I don't know that I have the answer, except, um, okay, so limbo, there's distinctions with limbo. So there's the limbo of the infants. So like, let's say- Oh you're, God, you're, there's multiple limbos? I know. Oh so let's say that like <laughs> your child has, your child dies and, and was not baptized. That's the limbo of the infants. And then there's another limbo. It's called the limbo of the fathers, which is where, like, if you died before Christ came, you went and hung out in limbo. 
until Christ was crucified and then he came down to limbo and like liberated you, right? Because if you died before Christ came, you haven't had a chance to accept Christ, which this is a thing I've heard debated in Protestant churches. Like, oh, well, what happened to people before Jesus was here? And no one knows, but everybody's got opinions. So those are, that's the limbo of the infants and the limbo of the fathers. Now I am not sure. I think limbo is also temporary, because okay. purgatory, you're purified, then you go to heaven. Limbo, I think, is the same. I think they're both like waiting rooms. Because I think if you're worthy of like the hell of the damned, you just go to the hell of the damned. So I think both of them are like okay. in between places where you can become worthy of heaven. Mm. Okay. That <laughs> um, well, gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, in case I'm wrong about this whole atheism thing. <laughs> you could totally go to limbo. Jacqueline? <laughs> Better than hell. I'll take it. <laughs> so the, the concept of this like in between or like waiting room, it's not just a Christian thing I found. Judaism, Islam, Egyptian, and Greek mythology all have some version of this like in between or waiting place, which I find really interesting. I, I really like to see the things that are similar across religions um, mm-hmm. because I think religion is just one of those like essential, like important things like to humanity for some reason, like every culture, mm-hmm. maybe not every, virtually every culture develops some kind of religion and they, many of them have like s- many similarities. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is one of those things where like many religions that have far flung beliefs, many of them have this concept of this sort of in between place. Now, of course, in our like day to day culture, we use the word limbo and purgatory like, (laughs) you know, when you're having like a bad day at work or a project isn't going well, you're like, I'm in purgatory or I'm in the ninth circle of hell or we (laughs) we use it like very, very differently than what the uh, the real definitions like turn out to be. So I have a question then bearing in mind all of that. The cult in Silent Hill, the Brethren. Do we think that they're in limbo or purgatory or are they just, are they somewhere else? Where are these folks? The way I, so I'm, I'm starting to rethink a little bit just in, in light of your distinction between purgatory and limbo, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of mentally reevaluate and say like, are my thoughts still true? <laughs> um, now that I know this, I, the way I interpreted what was going on with the cult, it seemed to me that they were in purgatory. And I'm going to try to like relate this back to what you said about the difference between them, because it seems like they're still trying to purify people and still trying to purify the group as a whole, like rid itself of, you know, sinful members, like they want to burn the witch and um, they're still kind of casting judgment on other people. And so it feels like they're trying to purify themselves as a group, almost like they're there's they're waiting for like they still think that there's a way for them to be saved like or or get out of this world that they're in Mm -hmm. and so i don't know i i i would suggest purgatory what are your thoughts well i kind of always thought purgatory not knowing there is a a distinction between purgatory and limbo but according to these definitions i feel like these people are not in either like I feel like these, okay. I feel like these people are after uh, Alessa comes after them in the end. I feel like these people are 
straight to jail, you know? Like, I feel like these people are headed for hell. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, so, but again, like, I don't think this movie is, is uh, you know, working with the framework of the actual Catholic definitions of this. I mm. do think there is a really interesting line that I really love. Love Rose. She's very strong. She's got some great lines. And there, at one point, she says you are alone in this limbo and God is not here. And I do feel like they have this idea that they are in some kind of system that they are righteous and they are in some kind of system that it's clear that they are not in. Like the rest of the world has moved on. They are stuck in this place of their own making. Um, Mm -hmm. so I feel like conceptually it's purgatory, but like technically I don't think where they are has anything to do with God or forgiveness or redemption. Mm. Yeah. Well, so I guess, well, maybe I should clarify (laughs) throughout the film. I thought that they were in like a purgatory, but then once Alessa like releases her vengeance, then I think it becomes a hellscape. And so, but leading up to that moment, I assumed it was a purgatory situation and then somehow it like transitioned. I don't know how yeah. you how you transition from purgatory it to very, hell, but it, yeah. <laughs> and it's very like cyclical, right? Yeah, uh, and so I mean, it just turns into this huge chamber of suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that to me like shifted it into hell. But I I didn't look back and think that they had been in hell all along. But that was my interpretation of it. Um, another question. Um, and this doesn't really matter. I'm just curious. How long do you think it is between the cycles of like the fog and the decay? I've never wondered that until this viewing. And I was like, I wonder how long it is. Well, maybe I misunderstood the the film, but I didn't know. I didn't think that there was like a scheduled cycle, to, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. Um, I sort of thought it was a like something that dark Alessa willed to happen. Maybe so. Like, will um, is that wrong <laughs> i don't know uh, here here's the deal i think there's a lot of questions in this movie and we don't necessarily have all the answers so i'm here for all the theories um because i always assumed <laughs> that yeah it was it was like a like a set cycle like it was every hour every two hours every six hours but there's not really there's not necessarily any evidence for that so you might be right it might be random which is scarier because then you can't really plan you know? Yeah. So it felt unpredictable to me as it happened throughout the, you know, the narrative of the movie. It, it felt, it felt unpredictable. And so I thought that this was like, you know, at a, you know, an emotional, an emotionally tense moment or, um, you know, something that harkened back to what happened to Alessa. I thought, I, I thought it was like something that she was willing to happen. I, I felt like she was in control of that cycle. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It makes sense that she would be because she's pretty much in in control of all of it. And I mean, Mm -hmm. even they sort of they describe it as like her nightmare. So I wonder if it's even to some extent like subconscious, you know, Mm -hmm. like this Mm -hmm. is just part of like what lives in her brain. 
Yeah. So my caveat for this whole episode is going to be that having only watched this once, I like I have my impressions, but that could change were I to view it, you know, two or three more times. <laughs> so but these are my impressions after one watch. Yeah, which I appreciate like the freshness of it because I saw this movie when it first came out and I've seen it probably half a dozen times um, mm-hmm. and I've grown to like love it more over time. Like I think because I've become so comfortable with it. Um, so, okay. So I've been doing a lot of talking and a lot of leading. What do you want to talk about next? (laughs) Um, what do I want to talk about next? Um, oh gosh, there's so many things. I would I would really love to jump into the topic of motherhood and the the themes of motherhood that are portrayed here because I think those there are some interesting things happening. Yes, yes. and we're doing double duty on this episode. We've got the women, we got the whor- the religion, we got we're doing both. So motherhood, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know obviously this this film has a lot of mother and daughter relationships in it, and you know some of them are not always clear in the sense that like. Sharon and Alessa's identities are not always totally mm-hmm. clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I, I have to say that really stood out to me personally that I kind of latched onto is this idea of Rose's motherhood being held as so, like her role as a mother being so strong. She's very giving. She the whole movie is her quest to do whatever she has to do to get her child back. Um, I mean, she will literally do anything. She will literally like venture into hell, right. To, Mm -hmm. to bring her child back. Um, This is just on a personal note for me. I appreciate any portrayal of an adopted child um, being deeply loved by a family and the mother in that relationship being portrayed as a genuine mother mm-hmm. uh, because I myself was adopted and I dislike portrayals of adoptive parents as not being real parents uh, or like adopted children as not being real children that like they're thought of differently in the family or like not don't receive as much love or that adoptive parents are not as important or, you know, I don't like when people say like, Oh, who's your real mother? Like, I I don't like, I I don't like those kinds of like concepts. And so I really appreciated the portrayal of Rose as a strong, dedicated mother and just as much a mother to Sharon as Dahlia is to Alessa mm-hmm. and or Sharon. <laughs> like that's <laughs> sort of unclear too. Um, <clears throat> and so that kind of leads to something you had on your outline, which was, or maybe you didn't, but something that I read from the director was that he says this film is very much about like immaculate conception. And I think that there's like two ways that that's portrayed here. On the one hand, I think maybe what it's more explicitly referring to is uh, Alessa's birth. I think it's suggested that perhaps Dahlia um, gave birth to her from like an immaculate conception. There's a big question mark about Alessa's father. And Mm so, you know, I feel like everything in this movie is a question mark, but I think it's possible. I think it's suggested that she could 
not have a father, um, or at least not like a human father that, um, you know, she was born immaculately to, to Dahlia. I think it's also possible that maybe just Dahlia's mother didn't want to be shamed because she was unmarried and, you know, this is a judgmental crowd that she's part of. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that it could be that too, but I do think that there's strong, a strong suggestion that this could be an immaculate conception. Um, but I also think, you know, and maybe this may have been unintentional, but as an adopted child, I'm always sort of clued into this. I mean, you could also, in a sense, argue that the Immaculate Conception concept applies to Rose as well, because she is, you know, this is a child that she did not give birth to. This is not like a, you know, a, a traditional, like a biological, you know, man and woman creating a child together. It's not exactly an Immaculate Conception, but this is, you know, a child who was not born to two. Right these two parents that she lives with. Um, And so I really appreciate that strong portrayal of motherhood and Rose as a very like self-sacrificing figure, which I I think has some of its own kind of religious implications, but maybe we'll hold off on that, I guess for the moment. But, but yeah, so that, that's, that's something I wanted to bring up. Yeah. I love Rose's character. She's so great in like many ways. And I I love when she says to Sybil, she says, Sharon's adopted, but I'm her mother. And it's like the way she delivers that line, she's like got her hands on her hips and she's just very like sure of herself. And then I also love, we hear it twice, the mother is God in the eyes of a child. Like, I just think that's such a beautiful phrase. And I also really like how at the end of the movie when Dahlia doesn't understand and she's like, why didn't she take me with the others? And whenever Rose quotes it to her, mother is God in the eyes of a child. um, Thinking about this from a religious perspective, which is not something I've really done before. This is really me. This is me really reading into this. But um, I thought, you know, our parents make a lot of mistakes. Like nobody's perfect. Parents are just people and they're going to make mistakes. And growing up in growing up in a religious family, as I did, you know, I think about there are lots of things that I experienced in the church that like weren't good and weren't healthy and that I don't appreciate. But I've never blamed my parents for any of that stuff, you know, partly because as I got older, they had they have some of the, a lot of the same criticisms I do. So <laughs> they 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 mm-hmm. weren't trying to sugarcoat stuff. They were pre- always pretty honest. So that's part of it. But I think another part of it is that maybe. Alessa is maybe even though she died as a child, I don't know if she's like mature enough to understand that like her mother was also a victim. It's like your mother's actions did lead to this end, but she was manipulated. She was also a victim. Um, So I do think that there's something really pure about the fact that Alessa does spare her mother and this concept Mm -hmm. of mother's God in the eyes of a child, like that whole The whole relationship is really beautiful. And also, to piggyback off what you said, um, Sybil is another great character who also has very motherly qualities. They talk about how she rescued that kid who was like thrown down the mine. Like she clearly also, like Rose, is very driven to protect and to, Mm -hmm. you know, and to like rescue and to be like a guard against this larger, darker world. So all of those, Mm -hmm. Dahlia, Rose, and Sybil, all are just so interesting to me. And they all are, 
kind of like strong in their own ways. Um, so yeah, definitely motherhood is is a big, big deal in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like those are the three central adult roles in this movie and they're all protectors. They're all nurturers in their own way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, and something I wanted to mention, you you brought this up um, before we were recording, but you mentioned something about the significance of names. And, you know, despite the the kind of religious upbringing that I had, I'm su- like, I'm surprisingly not that knowledgeable about like um, a lot of details in the Bible. So I don't always pick up on references and things. But um, one thing I did pick up, pick up on, it's not a biblical reference, it's a literary reference. I don't know if you picked up on this too, but um, the names of Rose and Sharon, to me, go together. So Rose of Sharon mm-hmm. is a name, like it can be a, a girl's name, um, and it can it's, can also be the name of a flower. But I put those names together in my brain immediately because it reminded me of the Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read that novel. Um, and so again, I don't know how deliberate these choices are and whether it's like designed to be a reference to this, but this is what happened in my brain. I immediately thought of a character in the Grapes of Wrath named Rose of Sharon. And her character in the film goes through a lot, but kind of in her most fully realized self, uh, in her, you know, as after she sort of undergoes the majority of her character arc, she becomes a mother. She's pregnant. Well, she's pregnant and her husband leaves her and then her baby is stillborn, which is you know, it shakes her to her core. It's tragic Mm -hmm. and devastating. And of course, it's a profound loss. But then the last scene of the novel, like the very last page, there's like an elderly man who's starving and weak and sickly and, you know, in desperate need of help. And she has, you know, just had a stillborn baby, but she's still producing milk. And she literally feeds this dying man from her breast in an effort to save him. And so I think that that is like a reflection of that, that specific character in that specific novel is a reflection of motherhood is like obviously a nurturer, but also like one who sacrifices for not just her own, but for any, you know, for others. And so to me, that was a connection to Rose and Sharon mm-hmm. in this film. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that Rose of Sharon can also be like a reference to Mother Mary, you know, Mary, the Virgin Mary. I don't know if you are aware of that, but I, I did read some brief mention of that. I couldn't find a lot to substantiate that. So I thought maybe you would know better than I. So it is in the Bible. I, I'm not aware of a specific reference to Mary by that name, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So I looked up kind of all of the main characters' names because same thing like Rose of Sharon. I was like, that sounds familiar. So Rose of Sharon, it says her name in Hebrew means a flower of the field. In the Song of Solomon 2.1, there's this uh, verse that says, I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. So it's this idea of, you know, something beautiful growing out of sort of something desolate. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's that. 
Okay, let me let me just let me run down this really quick. Okay, so rose, the name rose, like it just means the flower rose. Um, however, roses are a symbol of love, beauty, and hope, which I think is appropriate. Um, the name Sharon, just on its own, means fertile plain. In the Bible, Sharon refers to flat land at the foot of Mount Carmel. And then you, when you put rows of Sharon together, that's how you get a flower in the field. So Rose and Sharon are definitely like working together, like biblically. The name Sybil means prophetess, which I don't know if there's a direct tie in this movie, but prophetess sounds strong and Sybil is strong. So I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, when I read that, I was just like, ooh, yeah, that seems right. You know, the name Alessa is a shortened form of Alessandra, and it means defender of the people. And I was like, mm. the fact that she ends up, you know, taking revenge on these folks for mm -hmm. mistreating people, I'm like, that. That's, that's resonating. The name Dahlia means valley, which is interesting because... Sharon means fertile plain. So again, we've got these like, like there's a, a little bit of a resonance there. And then also Dahlia, like very clearly, she's like a downtrodden woman. So the fact that it means valley makes sense to me. And then of course, also you've got Rose as a flower and Dahlia as a flower. So that's a, a neat little connection. They do seem all sort of tied together in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's not like a, you know, ABC. The dots aren't perfectly connected, but there's a lot of interesting, like, stuff going on. Um, and then yeah. Christabella just simply means, like, believer, which is right on the nose. So She certainly is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was just a fun little rabbit trail to go down. Um, it's, again, again, one of those things I didn't know, really think about it the first few times I – times I watched it, but watching it this time, I was like, oh, these names, we got flower names, we got biblical names. Like, I was like, there has to be some, some like stuff going on here for sure. Yeah. I feel like those had to be deliberate, deliberate choices for specific reasons, because those aren't, those just aren't like the most common names <laughs> nowadays, you know, like mm -hmm. how many little girls do you meet named Sharon um, or Sybil yeah. or Dahlia? Like any of these really, they're all sort of Slightly unusual. They're not, you know, totally off the wall, but I mean, they're not the most common names. It's not like, you know, most of the female characters that you're going to see in mid 2000s movies on a daily basis. Exactly. You're right. They're just a tiny bit different than the norm, but not so mm -hmm. not so far mm -hmm. off that you would think about it right off the bat, which is sneaky. And I like it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if there was a character named Marge, like yeah. people just aren't named that anymore. No, not so much. There, ha there would have had to be a reason. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about like the cults and the witchcraft, because with everything going on in this movie, it's also a witchy movie sort of randomly. I don't know. I feel like it fits perfectly. I So, OK, so you said you liked the second half of this movie better than the first half. I am yeah. glad, though, that like we don't know about the cults. And the cursing people as a witch and all of that until later. Like, I feel like the mystery in the beginning and then we when we get to understand why later. Um, I appreciate all of that because I feel like I'm bought into the story and I'm bought into the characters so that I'm a little bit more willing to, like, go along with because it gets real sort of bombastic 
when we figure out who these people are and what they're doing and we're burning witches like left and right. Yeah. It gets real, you know, hellfire and brimstone pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. It like sort of turns into like a 16th century, like witch hunt classic, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that part of it really is sort of kept hidden until quite late in the film. Uh, up until then, it really seems like it's kind of a standard supernatural type situation with like shifting dimensions, but it's not immediately obvious that there's a religious element to it. Like we have little hints along the way, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the film, we see the, um, you know, the sign with the Bible quote on it leading into town and, you know, some, a couple things sprinkled throughout, but it's not explicit. It's not so explicit until quite late. And so... Um, and you don't you don't realize that that is there and that it has that degree of importance mm-hmm. in the history that has brought us to this point. And I guess, too, that like this, it seems like this cult is like pretty secretive and that they literally run everything. But it's mm-hmm. all sort of behind closed doors. And that's why, like, they have the doorway to like the sacrificial room is behind the painting in the hotel. And they're all wearing like hoods, all that imagery, by the way. Oh, so great. Um, all the church. Amazing. The church symbol and like the design of the church and all that stuff was like real great. But I guess so it's kind of like culty, secret society. Like it's just different than, you know, what I expected, what I thought. Like you said, it seemed like just a more standard supernatural. This place is cursed. We don't know why. But I personally appreciated the cult turn. I bought into it. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I love stories about that sort of thing. And I I felt that the movie was criticizing uh the like the fanaticism of this cult, but I did not feel like the film was anti-religious in any way. Um no. there's some movies that I think sort of blur that line and and sort of condemn religion in general because of uh certain fanatical factions, but I actually felt like this movie wasn't doing that at all. I thought it was a clear distinction between the two. I agree. And I would also argue that, you know, the the film is sort of holding motherhood, motherhood up as, you know, godly. You know, if it's coming off of that quote that you said, um, which I agree is so, it's so touching and so beautiful that like that, that quote about uh, motherhood is God in the eyes of child or mothers are God in the eyes of child. That's, I mean, that went straight into my heart. Um, also what you were saying about, this is a very small thing, but the movie not necessarily criticizing all religion is Rose is wearing a crucifix necklace Mm -hmm. and it's just a small thing, but they do show it a couple times. And there's one point it's when the, um, she's stuck in the, the bathroom and the like minors are like beating on the door. She's like holding it and she's praying and I can't remember if she prays at another time in the movie, but it's just a tiny little thing. But I was like, oh, like she's she believes in something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was it's a it's a subtle but again like important contrast between what she's doing and what's important to her and what she's fighting for versus these other folks. Well, and I think it's it it actually kind of goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of the show before we even started talking about the film. But when I was talking about my religious experiences in my youth and you said, you know, when when religious people aren't willing to hear questions or, you know, can't, you know, withstand any kind of opposition or 
resistance and, and you just want to force people into, you know, like, don't ask questions, just believe this, then that's not really faith. That's not a way to grow your faith. That's more like dogma. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this film is drawing that this film itself is drawing that distinction. Rose seems to actually have faith. Um, but what this cult is doing is dogmatic. And mm-hmm. so I think that the the film actually illustrates that distinction that you drew yourself early early on the show. Yeah. And another interesting woman in this movie is Christabella, who is the leader of the cult, which again, in and of itself, so often we see leader of a cult, it's going to be a man, not this one, it's Christabella. And she herself is kind of motherly in some ways. Um, she's sort of like, you know, taking care of all her little chickens, you know, and like gathering yeah, them into the church. Yes, her little <laughs> flock. And she's also like pretty kind at first, like pretty tolerant of bringing people in. And she's like, well, I don't think you should go to the hospital, but if that's what you want to do, we'll take you there and like tell you where to go, where you need to be. Like she seems very kind of like, she seems a little cold, but at the same time, She's sort of like, you know what? Live and let live. I don't think this is a good idea, but like live your life. Um, And then we have that, oh, that like brutal turn when she sees that Sharon looks like Alessa. And then they like beat Sybil almost to death. We honestly, it seems like she's dead. And then we find out later like, oh, no, she shall be burned. (laughs) She's just like tied up to a stick getting ready to, you know, roast herself. I know, man, what a disappointing death. But also like what a noble death, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. frustrating, but also like, oh, Sybil, man, she's great. That was a loss. Yeah. She was done dirty. Speaking of, okay, again, this movie, I think just like the art direction and the production design is gorgeous. And so when we first meet Sybil and she's like, she's on her motorcycle and she's got that tight cop uniform on, when she pulls that helmet off and she's got a blonde pixie cut, I was like, oh, I was like, this woman is, she's strong. She's amazing. And I didn't, I had never seen Lori Holden in anything. That was the first thing I ever saw her in. And so I was just like, Mm -hmm. who is this person? I was like, she's awesome. Oh my gosh, that that was such a great moment. I I marked that too. Like that, I, I definitely clocked that moment. I was like, whoa, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a that's a powerful kind of reveal. Um, super hot, I gotta say. <laughs> Seconded, yes, definitely. Um, and then my my second favorite look is when Rose comes back from the hospital, and she's like covered in dirt and stuff but her hair is like slicked back she and her her sweater's gone at this point so you can like see her her arms like she's got on a sleeveless top and she's just yeah oh she's looking so strong yes it's exactly it's Mm -hmm. it's fierce it's fierce so that's a little off topic but like (laughs) I couldn't not mention yeah no I think that matters I think that like costuming and makeup and hair design I think all those things matter because they create the character you know, to, to an extent. I mean, obviously the actor does most of the heavy lifting and the writing does a lot, but like the character, the character doesn't work if the character doesn't look right. So I, I don't discount those things at all. That's not, you know, trivial. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, another okay. really great look. I mean, like all the monsters are terrifying. Um, but like the nurses, oh my gosh, 
<laughs> horrifying. Like, horrifying. Yeah. And the fact that so it's like, drawn to the light. Oh. There's something about that that seems so inhuman. It seems more like insect-like. You know, their their features are not normal. They're drawn to the light. They sort of scurry a little bit. And including, okay, here's something I needed to ask you. That one nurse later in the movie who's like mm-hmm. weeping mm-hmm. and you don't really see her face at first. What? What what is going on there? Who is that? I thought they were saying that was Alessa, and I was very confused. No, I think that's just. I think it's just the nurse. I think it's just the nurse that was in Alessa's room, like taking care of her. Okay, because I thought somebody gestured to her at some point and said that that was her. No, because she mentioned something about hurting somebody who was only curious and then it shows that little clip of her nurse like peeking in so I guess whenever whenever Alessa's like nightmare took over I think she was just like collateral damage because she was in the room with Alessa and so now I think she's just sort of like doomed to stay there and take care of her okay that helps because I that that was adding an extra layer of confusion for me because I thought, well, is there another version of Alessa? Is there like a future version where she's older? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So I'm glad that it's not her at all. No, I think it's just a random character. I think it's probably purely for another cool visual. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of Alessa, we've got Alessa in the hospital, the real Alessa who's been burned. And then we've got Sharon who were explained that it's like the good part of Alessa. I don't know the mechanics of how that came to be a human baby. I don't need to know the mechanics of that. But well, you see Nicole, <laughs> and a woman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> because then we also have like Dark Alessa as a mm-hmm. child is like the devil, basically. I'm gonna say because you got mm-hmm. Alessa in the bed is real Alessa. Sharon is something else. And then there's this dark Alessa who weasels her way onto onto Rose's good side and gets taken into the church, which is what we want because these people deserve just judgment. But I do not trust this little dark Alessa devil figure. And at some point when Literally all hell is breaking loose and there's razor wire and chunks of people and blood and gore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rose and Sharon are like huddled in the corner and Rose has her hand over Sharon's eyes and Sharon like sees dark Alessa like through her mother's like in between her mother's fingers. And there's this moment where she like (gasps) and then I read somewhere that meant that like dark Alessa and Sharon remerged and I was like, I did not read it as that. I thought she was just scared of this figure. Like, did did you have any thoughts about that? It didn't seem to me like they merged. I didn't, I did not see that. I guess I can see how somebody would read into that. But if, even if they didn't, to me, it sort of begs the question that like, you know, if a human soul is like ripped in two and one side is the, you know, all the dark side of human nature that kind of is allowed to flourish and grow. And the other side is the innocent part without that darkness. It kind of makes me wonder then, you know, once they get out of that situation and, you know, the cult has been destroyed and everything and um, Sharon and Rose 
leave, it just, it sort of makes me ask the question, like, is Sharon really like a complete person? Is she like a full human? And I don't mean that in like, is she a monster? I just mean like, if you only have half of a soul and if you don't have the dark side of human nature that we all have, then are you like fully human? Mm. So I was sort of concerned about that. Okay. That's so sweet. I'm concerned about Sharon. What's <laughs> I'm concerned about Sharon. We need to talk about Sharon. Oh, because like I assume that like Alessa, real Alessa, like she'll just her soul will be like free to go wherever. And mm-hmm. little devil dark Alessa will just go back to hell or wherever the devil lives. Um, and then yeah, Sharon will just live as a regular person. We're which none of this really matters, right? Like when you when we start when we start talking about these little like the minutia of how it all works, yeah. I think it all sort of falls apart. Um, and it's like so speculative, yes. Yeah, like the mystery is, I think, part of the appeal of many supernatural movies. Not when it leaves you with big plot holes, but in this case, we don't need to know all the like little mechanics, right? It doesn't really matter, but it's fun to wonder though. Yes, and like perhaps, mayhap, Jacqueline, that is why. Sharon and Rose are kind of stuck in this in-between world. That's true. But then it also begs the question, well, if she's not like a fully realized human now, then she never was. Ah, but the other half of her soul was still out there. And I would like to believe that after the razor wire revenge that like original Alessa has moved on somewhere else. Like she doesn't still exist in Silent Hill. Does she still exist in Silent Hill? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, what about dark Alessa? Like, does she not still exist? Well, I mean, that's the thing is I think that the child we see as dark Alessa, I think is like a demon or the devil Mm -hmm. because the person in the bed is Alessa. So I would, I would assume that like that is the, what was left of her. Once the good part of her went to live in Sharon. See? See how this... See? Yeah. See look, how at the, look at this path we're going we're down right now. Picking, we're just pulling at the thread and it's all coming apart. <laughs> yeah. So I guess... Okay. So I guess I thought that real Alessa in the bed... Alessa in the bed. That's her name. Mm-hmm. Alessa in the bed is kind of like a husk at this point. I, I thought that like her entire soul had kind of left her body and then ripped into two. And so I didn't think that Alessa in the bed still really had a soul. I thought her soul was still kind of outside of her body. But wait, though, because (laughs) dark Alessa, as she's presented to us in the movie, does not speak in the first person. She's like, Alessa this, Alessa that, Alessa was hurt. And then I came to her. Yeah. I came to her and I told her that I would make her darkest nightmare come true. And then they touch hands and that's when the whole town turns dark. So to me, the child we see as dark Alessa is is like the devil. And Alessa still is like a person. Yeah, she's still like, I don't. (sighs) It's complicated, Jacqueline. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it it is. I see I see your point now. I guess I was just kind of going by that piece of narration that like, oh, when you know her her soul split there's like a piece of narration that explains like how the soul kind of ripped in two. Um but you're right, and there's also I think a moment where Christabella says, like, the face of the demon hides behind 
an innocent yes. or something like that, which is saying like it may look innocent, but it's really the devil. Yeah. So, which coming from Christabella is like, well, you probably call maybe not reliable the demon, right? Yeah. 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 You know, so I, so yeah, I think that's, we don't necessarily trust Christabella 100%, but in this case, I think she, I think she might be right. Right. Yeah. So that would corroborate what you said. And, you know, going by just like lore, you know, demons, the devil can't enter a church, right? Because it's mm-hmm. holy ground. So I would think that that would be further support that Dark Alessa is an entity and not just mm-hmm. half mm-hmm. of Alessa's soul. Yeah. And then maybe all that rage and pain that she went through. Like, I, I do think that the monsters that we see, like the deformed creatures and weird, like pyramid head and all that, I do feel like that those were suggested to be like manifestations of her rage and pain. So maybe that's where that energy went to. If it wasn't, you know, Dark Alessa, if Dark Alessa was just purely the demon or the devil himself. Yeah. Then maybe that's where all that energy went into those other creatures. And they were pretty much vanquished, right? I mean, I would assume so because, um, I mean, we don't, again, we don't know the 100% the mechanics, but it's the way they set it up whenever Dark Alessa is giving the flashback speech, she's like, this like dream of a life may, has to end. And so to me, that means this back and forth, you know, foggy slash hellscape that's all going to come to an end so i assume that whenever alessa vanquishes the cult it's the whole world is is changing now we know mm-hmm. that the fog persists but i assume that all again all the darkness is going to be gone and that includes all the monsters right all that stuff um mm-hmm. and we're only left with like the calm and the peace even though it's not the real world it's not everything's not Right. Everything's not perfect, but all of that, like, yeah, darkness and evil and corruption is basically gone. Mm -hmm. Well, that you brought up an interesting point a few minutes ago about how when they return home, they're still in the fog world. Mm -hmm. They're not in the real world. Mm -hmm. And like, that is very interesting to me that all of our primary characters are female and they are the only ones who seem to be able to enter the fog world. You know, um, I can't remember the character's name, but Sean Bean, he's just Sean Bean to me. (laughs) He, uh, like, he tries to go find them, but he is not, like, he doesn't even know about the existence of this fog world, and Mm -hmm. he certainly doesn't have any way to to enter it. And so the fact that at the end of the movie, he's still in the real world, and Rose and Sharon are still in the fog world is intriguing and mysterious to me. And it almost makes me wonder if they're like the film is saying something about like what we think is the real world. Cause his, like at the end, you know, he's waiting for them to come home and it, there's like, a, there's very warm tones to the mm-hmm. lighting. Mm-hmm. And I think there's maybe like a potted flower on the table and he's like relaxing on the couch waiting for them to come home. It looks like actually quite cheerful. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, the world that Rose and Sharon are in is very cold, like cold lighting colors and, um, has that fogginess to it. And I almost wonder if like that world is really meant, like it's suggesting that the world that they inhabit now is more real than his world. Like he's not able to see the real. he's not able to see the full reality of what has led to this point. Yeah, that's Does that make any sense? Like he's not aware of the full reality. It's like, it's almost like he's living in like a little dream, like a little happy dream that isn't the full picture. 
Well, you know, what's interesting about that theory is that all along, I mean, he, of course, seems concerned for his daughter as well. But Rose is the one that's like obsessed with figuring out what's wrong with our child. So I think that's an interesting idea about the reality of what we're facing here, where he is living in kind of one reality and she's living in a different one. And um, I also like how they sort of like gradually integrate the difference because at least for me, tell me if you had a different thought, but like I didn't notice right away like yeah the lighting differences and stuff and then at some point it becomes very clear that like oh well he's there and she's there and they don't see each other and it doesn't look the same like so I I appreciate how we gradually realize that oh she is somewhere else yep yeah it took me a minute too that was not immediately apparent but you're right at a certain point it's crystal clear Mm -hmm. um but at first I was like, oh, she's going to, when are they going to see each other? Yay. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be reunited. And I was like waiting for that happy reunion. And then it started to dawn on me that that was not going to happen, which is, that, that was a good, that was a good, um, like illusion at first, you know, they, they got me. Did you, I mean, did you like that ending? Yeah, I did. It, it didn't have the like happy emotional satisfaction that I had hoped for, but I think it's more interesting. I think this ending is more interesting. It makes me ask more questions. And so this movie seems to be all about creating questions without necessarily feeling the need to provide all the answers. And so this is one of them. Like I feel like the filmmakers are letting us speculate and consider different explanations. I think that like that's part of the intent here is to deliberately either withhold answers or allow there to be no answers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's fitting. Yeah. I Of course, I love it when movies do that. As long as we don't have any gaping plot holes, I mm-hmm. love a good, you know, open-ended movie with lots of questions. Um, yeah. Okay. So I feel like we've covered almost everything. But before we give, like, final thoughts, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we have not addressed yet? Let me just consult my notes yeah. here. Just just comb, comb through those notes. Oh, while you're looking through your notes, there is one thing I wanted to mention. Watching it this time around, um, it struck me that similar to, okay, spoiler for Autopsy of Jane Doe. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> yes. Okay. So folks, if you haven't, please skip ahead like a minute. Um, similar to Autopsy of Jane Doe, like these folks, like sort of like, accidentally created a witch you know through Mm -hmm. their religious practice and their own actions they turned this like regular person into the thing that they feared the most and i was like Mm -hmm. oh what a nice little bridge Mm -hmm. (laughs) nice little nice little irony there yeah that's it for me what about you anything else no i think we we got all the big stuff yeah all right jacqueline give us your final thoughts your bottom line on a silent hill I think this is an interesting movie that brings together some nice themes that I I think aren't always placed together this explicitly and explored in so much depth, namely the role of motherhood and 
uh, religion as it fits into horror. And so putting those two things together so strongly in a horror film was very interesting. This film is very much a puzzle box to me. I hope that upon further viewings in the future, I will feel a little more confident in my grasp of it. But for my first time, I feel like I got, you know, you know, a lot out of it. I think one of the greatest strengths of this movie is it's winding mysteries. And I think its second greatest strength is the absolute incredible visual imagery. And I, I don't think that that's unimportant. I think it matters here. I think the visual imagery and the production design on this are extremely important, like particularly important in this movie. It's important on every movie, but for this one, I think it's it's particularly important because I think we really have to buy the worlds that we inhabit mm-hmm. in this movie as what they are supposed to be. Like it, they cannot fall down on the look of the fog world. They cannot fall down on the look of the nightmare world. They cannot fall down on the look of the monstrous creatures that we meet along the way. All of those things matter a great deal. And if they did not work, I think it would make the whole film not work, actually, because we really have to believe that these are like alternate worlds that we're inhabiting and following these characters through. Um, And so luckily, I think all of those things are an absolute home run. Um, Some of those images of the nightmare world, and particularly for me, the climactic scene where I almost just said Bellatrix, like I'm in Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> Christabella and you know the and the the other cult members get their just desserts. Um, I mean that is as that is as indelible a hellscape as I've ever seen, probably in a, in a horror film. And it, but they but they nailed it. So this is there's so many interesting things going on in here. I. I do think there are times when the dialogue gets a little cheesy, but I mean, we might chalk that up to it being 2006. I feel like some of that was sort of typical of some of the films at the time. But Rada Mitchell, my God, what a performance by her. And Lori Holden, um, I mean, those two characters really sort of carried the whole thing for me. I mean, they, they were really stellar. And so I think... You know, I mentioned before that I felt like the first hour was kind of a slog. It feels a lot like just kind of watching Rose run around this town and, you know, making some observations, but really very little to move the story forward. So that's a little rough for me. I feel like maybe some editing could have like tightened the pace just a little. I'm okay with like settling into a place and taking time to explore it, but I do think it kind of was a little excessive here. But overall, I mean, this was this was, I think, a, a successful and very thought-provoking exploration of motherhood and religion and what happens to an individual who goes through absolutely intense, unthinkable, unspeakable pain. I think that's like what it's about. What about you? Um, I feel, you know, I agree with a lot of your points. Um, I really appreciate this movie. Like I said, I've I've seen it many times and I I know I was definitely more critical of it like when I first saw it. And over the years, it's it's become I don't know if it's become a full-blown comfort horror, but it is something that like I can just put on at any time and I think the atmosphere and the characters that you were speaking to, I think that's part of the reason why I can do that. 
I enjoy just kind of like the understated dread and the atmosphere of this movie so much. And I don't know how much of this story was included in the game, but I think this story works really well. Um, especially if none of this was in the game and they just hung this story on the visual of the game, then like kudos. But I do appreciate that they give it time to breathe and really develop characters that you care about. Um, from a religious perspective, like The Mist, I think this movie gives us like a really worthy religious cult. Um, we don't see a ton of them and we don't get into like the little minutia of like their beliefs and their practices, but we get enough to understand it. And of course, like as is typical with these groups, like they're hypocrites. Um, they use their power to manipulate and control and kind of punish, you know, the weak and the innocent. That's nothing new, but it's executed really well here. Um, and their punishment is very satisfying. Um, difficult to watch still, I think, difficult to watch, but very satisfying. And I think it's especially because it's directly tied to their own actions. They're the ones that caused the fire. They are responsible for destroying the town. Everyone else has been able to move on, but they are literally trapped in a hell of their own making. And that's a concept that I am always super fascinated with. Um, and as we touched on already, I am a big fan of the end of this movie. It's really a haunting that Rose and Sharon escape Silent Hill, but they don't completely escape the world of Silent Hill. And like, it's a little bit sad. Like, it's a little bit sad, but it's also an appropriate ending. And sometimes I feel like cheated when a horror movie gives us too much of a happy ending. So what I really like about this movie is that it gave us like a cathartic resolution and Rose and Sharon get to be together, but it ultimately concludes on this kind of like beautiful, like melancholy note. Mm -hmm. And I love it when a horror movie sticks the ending because it does not happen a lot of times. A lot of horror movies have terrible endings. And to me, this yeah. is a perfect horror ending. Um mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that about it. It is it is melancholy. You're right. And for me, I, it's so funny that you said that for you, this, this is kind of like a comfort horror movie, because to me, that's so that like it penetrates my heart so much that for me that like that makes it something I could not just throw on for fun. Like I'd have to be in the right mood and be like, OK, here we go. <laughs> like there are movies I'll just throw on, but um, I don't know that. Like the sort of sadness of it makes it not that for me. <laughs> I don't know. I guess uh, sometimes, well, a lot of times actually, like sad, depressing things are what make me feel comforted, which a lot of horror fans mm -hmm. would say that, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of times when I want to just throw something on, oftentimes it is something that's a little more somber and quiet mm. so this movie is is good for that for sure um it's interesting so if people like silent hill do you have recommendations for similar media films books what have you i i do i have some some choices here um i couldn't really think of anything that i felt like was close to this in terms of theme and flavor but I have kind of separate little lists here. I have, you know, movies that deal with sort of 
dark or evil or possibly evil children and related to religion. So of course, for me, that's like an unholy trifecta of Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, and The Exorcist. Like if that's the kind of theme you want with like a possibly malicious, possibly malicious child with like a religious overtones there. I also think you- strong motherhood in two out mm-hmm. of those three. For sure. Actually, probably all I three. Think, I think all of them. Yeah. All of them have strong, strong uh, mother roles. Um, if you're looking for films with, you know, characters venturing into strange lands, I think you could do a lot worse than Pan's Labyrinth, mm. uh, Alice in Wonderland, um, actually like more like the Tim Burton version and The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, that's you know, way less dark, obviously, but there's some darkness. There's, there's some darkness there. For sure. Um, Hellraiser movies, for sure. If you just, if you want movies about hell, like that's, you know, yeah, Hellraiser. With beautiful imagery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, from a literary kind of bent, I think, I mean, in The Inferno and Paradise Lost are absolute must, you know, they're all time staples of explorations of literary explorations of hell. Yeah. And I think a lot of what we know about hell in our culture comes from those books. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And art too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you took like different approaches to that because I have com- a completely different set of stuff. So oh, the folks are going to get lots of good recommendations. Um, <laughs> so mine are exclusively like purgatory. Oh, okay. So some of these might be a little spoilery actually. So just, I don't know, like proceed at your own risk. Be a, beware. Yeah, just beware. <laughs> um, so the first one I'm going to recommend is Southbound. And it is a anthology movie. I'm not going to say too much about it, but it's also a good women in horror recommendation because there's at least one segment directed by a woman. And I'm so sorry. I cannot remember who, but me either. You can look it up. You can look it up. (laughs) Um, And I won't go into detail. You'll just have to watch it and you'll see why it's called Southbound. Um, Another good one is uh, Jacob's Ladder from 1990 i really want to cover jacob's ladder i saw it for the first time last year and just fell in love with it and i was like oh is this sneaky religion and horror movie um sure is yeah it is um another fun (laughs) one not horror is um in bruges which is a fantastic movie and part of the reason why i recommended in bruges is because there is uh a lot of references to Bosch and Bosch is this painter who did these like beautiful, intricate hellscapes that I feel like Silent Wild. Hills definitely some of those creatures were inspired by Bosch. Um, another one, not horror, what dreams may come, which is a Robin Williams movie from the late nineties. Yeah. I remember that movie yeah. coming out. Um, I never, I never saw it. I was supposed to go on a date with somebody to see it. And then something happened and we didn't go on the dates. So. Well, we watched it in one of my art classes in high school and it left an impression on me. So I revisited it a few days ago. Certain aspects do not hold up. Like the effects do not hold up. It's kind of cheesy, kind of a little over saccharine, but the concepts are strong. It's a very interesting movie if you are at all interested in like ideas of the afterlife, because it takes a very sort of abstract view of the afterlife. So there's a lot of like beauty and imagination, 
But then it's at one point the main character has to go into hell and it is very Renaissance painting, Paradise Lost, um, all that. So again, the effects don't 100% hold up, but like some of just the ideas are really unsettling. So it's kind of like a love story and a happy movie, but then there's just bizarre part in the middle where you're going into hell. It's just, it's an interesting movie. For I sure. had no idea. I thought I thought it was just strictly kind of like a saccharine kind of like inspirational kind of thing. I had no idea that there was this like detour. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I liked it is because it is very saccharine at certain parts. And then it's like, <laughs> this movie, I need to, I don't know who directed it or wrote it, but now I feel like I need to do some research on that because I feel like this person and I vibe together. Um <laughs> Other hellscape purgatory type movies. Um, I got two more. Event Horizon, which is a great space movie. Kind of has Hellraiser vibes. And then the last one is Triangle, which the less I say about that movie, the better. Just watch it. When did Triangle come out? Because I'm wondering if I'm thinking of the right movie. Uh, Like 2010s. Okay. I think I'm not, that's not the one I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> Melissa George okay. is in it. I'm going to have to look. Oh, I know her. 2009. And it's about this, okay. this woman. She goes sailing with her friends and there's lots of time loops. And you're like, what is oh, happening on this boat? So maybe like Bermuda Triangle. Yes. Well, don't, don't answer me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that it's, was just that's, a guess. Okay. It is Bermuda Triangle. That's not spoilery though. Like you figure that out. You figure that out pretty fast. Um, but yeah, okay. just an interesting Anyway, oh, that's interesting. Yes, I don't want to say any more about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know when I was making this list, I was like, am I going to spoil all these movies? I think I've been vague enough. Yeah. Well, since you're, well, based on what you just said about the time loop thing, I mean, maybe you could even throw Groundhog Day on that list and that would be appropriate to the time we're recording this. It's almost Groundhog Day. <laughs> that's an all time classic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you want to go completely di- after the razor wire scene, if you need a palate cleanser, do Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, and you'll be fine, and you'll be ready to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's the movie I throw on. <laughs> oh well, Jacqueline, thanks again so much for coming on for another Women in Horror Month episode. Um, please remind the folks what your podcast is and where they can find you. Oh, thanks, Nicole. You're the best. Um, My podcast is A Cut Above. It's uh, my friends, John and Heidelberg and me, and the three of us talk about a different movie every week. Um, You can find us on all the regular podcatchers, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. We're there. So A Cut Above Horror Review. Yes. And I will be guesting, let's see, this episode's coming out probably, I believe this episode is coming out before I guest on your show. So hopefully, people, you need to keep an eye on a cut above, and I will be there. (laughs) Yep. And yeah, you'll be coming on on February 19th, so the episode will probably be out on the 20th or 21st. Yep. This episode will definitely be out before then. So when you're done listening to this, go listen to my I Cut Above episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I also wanted to just like do a little shout out to some of our like podcasting sisters, um, our friend Caitlin has plug it up. It's very, oh, it's, yeah. it's always female centric. So it's a good, sh- great show. Um, Ghoulish University, which is our friend Logan, who was on for the Conjuring episode. It's her podcast about tells from the crypt. It's like fun, campy, 
lots of chaos. Sometimes they have like five or six people on there and it's just like, it's pure chaos. I love it. Um, and then uh, our friend Anna has Cinema Slab and they do kind of a little bit of everything. They do review. Right now they're doing um, a series about True Detective and I'm having a blast listening to them talking about True Detective because we're all just trying to figure it out together. And um, I'm going to be on their show, let's see, on the 5th. So when this episode is out, you can go back and listen to uh, the Cinema Slab series on True Detective. And I am on one of those episodes. I'm doing a few guest spots in February, which I love. I'm always happy to do guest spots, but I'm especially happy to do them during February. It's a good month. It is. It's a great month. So as always, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. Please rate and review the show wherever you listen. You can become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash Light and Shadow Pod. Um, I'm going to keep next month's episode under wraps for the moment. Um, I think I know what it's going to be and I'm excited about it, but uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet. Um, so... Until next time, remember to support women in horror and stay spooky. 